If you brought your Bibles, open up to the book of Leviticus. It's the third book in the Bible. Leviticus chapter 1. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's word to us tonight. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your livestock, your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's son, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, the head, the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs shall be washed with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his gift for a burnt offering is, is from the flock, from the sheep or goats, he shall bring a male without blemish. And he shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. And Aaron's son, the priest, shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. And he shall cut it into pieces with the head of its fat. And the priest shall arrange them on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But the entrails and the legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or pigeons. And the priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off its head and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar. He shall remove its crop with its contents and cast it beside the altar on the east side in the place for ashes. He shall tear it open by its wings, but shall not sever it completely. And the priest shall burn it on the altar, on the wood that is on the fire. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. This is God's word. You know, that opening verse there, actually verse 2 in Leviticus 1, sounds a little bit like the conversations I had with my father when I was in high school. Uh, It went to something like this. It was like, you know, when, Les, you finish cutting the grass, uh, I want you to help me do this painting or something like that. Emphasis on the word when, not if. Throughout the entire book of Leviticus, and we're trying this semester to come to some sense to have some explanation for this book, you're going to to find that sacrifice is completely throughout the entire thing. Sacrifice is completely understood at the heart of God's dealings with his people. It's assumed at every single turn. And I'll be honest with you, you're lying if you don't think that that's weird. Why in the world would we get the bizarre detail that we get from this passage about the how and the why and the where of offering sacrifices? Uh, 
We're trying this semester to come to some sense of understanding this book. And I simply want to offer you three thoughts tonight in dealing with the question of what do these sacrifices mean? I want you to see, first of all, the issue of God and these sacrifices. Second of all, the issue of Jesus and these sacrifices. And third, the question of love and these sacrifices. Okay, first of all, God and sacrifices. Look, you have God here addressing people that I talked to you about this last week who have been enslaved for 400 years. For 400 years, he calls these people to himself out of a life of misery and psychological dysfunction. And he says to them, you've got to understand some of the basics of what it's going to mean to have a relationship with me. And he says, therefore, I'm going to build everything that I have to say to you around one sacrifice. It's the biggie. (laughs) It's the one, honestly, upon which every single other sacrifice in the book of Leviticus is built. It's the burnt offering. In the Hebrew, it's known as the hola offering. And it's the fundamental sacrifice of all of them. And you have to understand what is said here in order to get a grasp on how important this was. In other words, in these details, there's something fundamental that God is saying to his people about how we're going to relate to each other. Let me throw out to you a handful of features that we just zipped past and you probably never noticed. The first thing that God says is, is when you bring this offering to me, it's got to first of all be a male. And second of all, it can have no problems with it. A male without defect. Now, why? What's the point? Well, in that particular culture, a male offering of an animal was much more valuable than a female offering. Uh, And, of course, the ones without defect, if it had no deformities, was all that much more valuable. In other words, God is going to his people and he's saying, the greater the cost to you, the greater the love. And so, therefore, if you're going to come and approach me and have a relationship with me, it's going to have to cost you something. Look, you have to recognize that this is a universal principle. You are more willing to spend money on the things that you care about than anything else. Your money follows your heart, or at least so Jesus says. I remember having a conversation many years ago with a young man who was getting ready to get engaged. And in the midst of the conversation, he was bragging to me about how cheaply he had gotten his future fiance's ring. Uh, Guys... (laughs) Little tip here. Uh, That's not the thing you want to be bragging about. The things that you love the most will always cost you the most. I just won the hearts and affections of every female in the room. That's right. God is looking at his people and saying, I am to be the most valuable to you. And if you're going to have a relationship with me, it's going to be based upon love. And because it's based upon love, it's going to be costly. Secondly, though, God looks and says that with this offering, what I want you to do is I want you to lay your hands on him. Literally, what it says in the Hebrew is to lean upon. It's a very interesting word that it uses because the word actually signifies a transfer. It means that there's an identification that's going on between the person and the sacrifice. In other words, you're saying this animal is going to substitute before me to God. This is a powerful statement, and I want you to let this sort of soak in. We've all heard statements like that, but we've never really thought about it. Because God was basically saying to these people, you need to realize that a relationship with me means that at every given moment of your day, 
At every single moment of your life, you deserve to have me come and judge you. The nature of yourself in contradiction to my purposes in life means that every single one of us deserves death. And a sacrifice kept that in front of these Jewish people to know that that was the only way that you're going to have a relationship with me is if you have a substitute. When? you offer an offering to me. In other words, the whole sacrificial system, I heard one commentator put this way, says that I am holy, God is saying, and you are not. And for the holy to interact with the unholy, there must be a go-between. Do you have one? I recognize for a lot of us, this is foreign to us, grotesque even for many of us, and that's fine. But I want you to consider this possibility that one of the reasons why these ideas are so repellent to us is because we think that we're going to relate to God in the same way that we relate to each other. If there's anything the book of Leviticus is going to scream to you, it's God saying, you're going to have to deal with me differently than you do with other people because I'm not cranky, I'm holy. And there's got to be a go-between. Thirdly, he looks and he says, what I want you to do is I want you to slit the throat of this offering and I want you to do something with the blood. I mentioned this only in passing because we're going to talk a whole lot more about it in the weeks to come. But understand that the blood of an animal, the blood of a human being for that matter, represented to these ancient people the very life of the person. Blood equaled life. And therefore, life had to be poured out. In other words, God was saying, I need you to understand something. That life can only be paid for in its own currency. And if your life needs redeeming, it must come at the expense of another life. Another life must be offered. Fourthly, he looks and he says to them that the offering can be many varieties depending upon your economic situation. I love this. At the very end of the list, you suddenly hear that God, if you don't happen to have a lamb or a bull without defect, is you can come and bring a bird. A bird was the offering of poverty. In other words, God is looking and saying, I'm not going to let economic issues separate us. I simply mention this because we're going to come to this over and over and over again. God's heart is with poverty. And the sooner you get that into your mind, the better. It's the reason why we had Whitney come up here and go through that litany of things that we would come and give you the opportunity to serve out of. Because God's eye is to the poor. And he looks and says, if you can't afford this, I'll find another way. Opening up a window that I think you'll see over and over again this semester. Finally, God gives instruction for the sacrifice to be completely consumed by fire. Everything's supposed to be burned up. This is not some gentle backyard grilling. What it is, it is a total incineration of the sacrifice. There was nothing except ashes that were supposed to be left. What is God saying? He's saying, look, if our relationship is to be total, then there's nothing less than total sacrifice that I'll accept. If you're going to be a worshiper of me, it's because you were totally committed. And there was something that was totally committed to you. It's completely burned up. My friend Brian Habig, who is actually teaching through a series in Leviticus at his church in Greenville, South Carolina, asked a question to his people that I thought was uh, uh, very profound. He said, what would have been in the mind of a Jewish person if every single day in the center of their entire little village, their traveling tent-like village, 
When they looked toward the center of town, whether it was morning or whether it was night, there was a constant smoke coming up. They would smell the smells. They would see the sight. What would go through their mind? What kind of worldview would they build around to look and say that I cannot go to this God in a casual way? What would that have been like? It would have been very different from the worldview in which we have. Even the worldview in which many of us who claim to actually know God have. God looks and says, to know me is to understand the issue of sacrifice. Which is exactly the reason that why when all of a sudden, thousands of years later, we have a young upstart prophet from a small little redneck town in Palestine called Nazareth. A man by the name of Jesus comes along and begins to preach He begins to refer to himself in the very language of sacrifice. He employs it himself. So much so that the writer of the book of Hebrews, which by the way, the New Testament book of Hebrews, is nothing more than a commentary on the book of Leviticus. It's the way to unlock that whole passage. That he comes and he looks and says, if you want to understand what I'm about, you got to understand these sacrifices. Think about this. Jesus comes, first of all, to be completely and totally offered. You see, the burnt offering was completely consumed. It was 100% eaten up. As a matter of fact, the burnt offering, hola, is where we get the word holocaust. A complete and utter consumption of the victim. Jesus comes along and says, when I'm on the cross, that thing that we just sang about, that we said was so precious to us. When I'm on the cross, I'm coming to be completely consumed. I used this illustration last spring, but I think it bears repeating again. In the olden days, the way in which farmers used to deal with grass fires, which you can imagine back in the day was a great problem. And of course, as those grass fires would sweep across the plains, their own livelihood, their homes, their barns were threatened by the coming fires. What the farmers would do is they would do something called a controlled burn. They would burn a strip or a wide band around their own family and their own barns around the entire perimeter of their own home and place. So that by the time the grass fires reached that band, it was already burned so the fire would suddenly stop. That is a beautiful picture of what Jesus said, I came to do. I came to afford for my people to burn a swath around you So that when the fires of God's absolute wrath and his perfect justice come to consume you, they find that there's someone there who's already been scorched. Jesus on the cross was scorched for his people, totally consumed in a holocaust, unlike any other human being has ever faced. Secondly, though, he looks and says that there's got to be an identification with me. These ancient people were supposed to lean on the sacrifice, to literally cast their weight upon them. This, in my opinion, is the Old Testament definition of faith. A term, by the way, which I have contended for years, none of us really understand. For many of us, we think that we have this idea of faith that it's some feeling state whereby we have purged our minds of doubt Others of us think that it's sort of this um, uh, sort of willpower to sort of jump and make a leap of faith and believe in the absurdities of Christianity. Y'all, none of those are the biblical definition of faith. No, no, the sacrifices are showing us what faith really is. Because what you were supposed to do was to lean on it, to trust in it, 
So that the issue of the sacrifice was not necessarily how you were leaning or how you placed your hands on it, but rather the merit of the lamb. It was what the lamb did, not what you did concerning the lamb. There's an old Scottish writer, an old dead guy, been dead about 120 some odd years, named Horatius Bonner, who wrote wonderfully about this when he said this. He said, listen to this. He said, what would you have said to the ancient Israelite who should begin to ask himself questions about the right way to lay his hands on the head of the victim or perhaps refuse to take any comfort in the lamb because he wasn't sure whether he had laid his hands on him rightly on the proper place in the right direction with the adequate, adequate pressure or with the right attitude. What would you say to them? Should you not have told him that your own actings concerning the lamb were not the lamb? And yet that was that they were speaking as if they were. Should we not have told him to be of good cheer? Not because he had laid his hands on the victim in some super approved fashion, but that because he had touched the victim, however lightly, however imperfectly, and thereby said, let this lamb stand for me. It's not the quantity of your faith, he says, nor is it the quality of your faith, faith, but it's the object of your faith. My friends, that's the issue with faith. I have contended for a while now, and I'll do it again, that one of the reasons why we are struggling so much spiritually, for those of us that are, is because our faith is in our faith. We're believing in our ability to believe And we're acting as if we're a young Israelite looking at the lamb and saying to himself, "Uh, am I doing this right? Am I laying my hands on him right? And you would go to that person and say, look, it's not the point. The point is the lamb. Look to him. He's the one who's doing it right. In other words, what if true biblical faith from its inception, the book of Leviticus of all places, (laughs) what if true biblical faith was not what you did for God, but what God did for you and how consumed we are with how much I've done for him. There's a handful of people in this room. I guarantee it. Who just caught a little whiff of good news. Follow that trail because thirdly, we get the next news in the next point that Jesus says, because in Ephesians five, two, Paul comes along and says that we are to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Listen, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. A fragrant offering. Do you hear that language? Paul's getting that from Leviticus chapter 1. Because over and over again we see that these people are offering this thing. And the smoke of which, get this image, is something that is a good smell to God. I know that's weird to talk about God with a nose, but that's the image. <laughs> For some reason, that sacrifice was a good smell to him. He liked it. In other words, he delighted in it. He was satisfied with it. He was fully satisfied by it. What a wonderful picture. I got to be honest with you. I'm, I'm learning to, um, I'm learning to appreciate certain smells. This is a weird topic to talk about, but go with the illustration with me here. I love walking into my home because there's a certain scent that my home has. It's familiar. Um, one of the things that I've enjoyed the most lately, and I've enjoyed it because I realize that I'm getting out of this particular phase is um, my youngest will still pile up into my lap on Sunday mornings. Uh, Luke is five years old, and sometimes he will um, 
uh, he'll want to come sit with daddy, or usually he's actually acting up in church and come here, son, come here. And I'll have to sit him in my lap every now and then he'll get still on my lap. And I got to be honest with you. And you may think this is weird. When you have kids, you can, you know, condescend to me, but I've gotten to where my son just kind of has that boy smell where he just kind of smells like outdoors a little bit. And he smells like he's been running around the house, which he has, or he smells like whatever shampoo we put in his hair the night before. And I realize that I'm not going to have that much longer. And there's something about that that I connect with. And I know it's kind of weird, but I just find myself wanting to bury my face in, in my son's hair because I find him to be so delightful because of it. Look, y'all, anything less than that idea from the mind of God is less than the Christian gospel. God is looking and saying, if the sacrifice is there, I have not established with you a relationship based on toleration. I feel like one of the greatest um, problems with us in dealing spiritually with where we are is that there is a unwritten what, suspicion that God is dealing with me on the basis of toleration. You know what I mean? By toler- he's, he's tolerating me. My relationship to him is one where he's like, well, I mean, if I had to, I mean, you did pray the prayer when you were in seventh grade. So, okay. (laughs) Is there room carved out in your idea of spirituality? Even if you don't find yourself within Christianity this week of a God who would sit and pile you up into his lap and bury his face in your hair and say, it's the smell of you that I like. I haven't liked the scent of you because it reminds me of home and it reminds me of love and it reminds me of closeness and it reminds me of intimacy. My friends, the sacrificial system was not some sort of cosmic, you know, Shylock up in heaven, you know, demanding his pound of flesh from his people. It was God's way of saying, I want you with me. And so therefore the foundation of the sacrifices was one of love. And it brings me to the last and third point. We see God in sacrifice. We see Jesus in sacrifice. But finally, do you see that at the heart of the sacrifices, and there's a couple more to come. We'll actually talk about two more next week. Was a desire for God to love his people. In his book, Reason for God, uh, Tim Keller mentions a conference speaker that he had read about who had spoken with some annoyance as to why Christians always talk the way they do about sacrifice. The quote went, you know, I don't think we need a theology of atonement and blood at all. I don't think we need folks hanging on crosses and blood dripping and weird stuff. His point was that we need to concentrate on a God of love, one who's peaceable and one who's kind. Do we really need the violence in the Bible? instructions of how to twist the head off of that bird and throw it to the east side of the altar. And people object to that. Keller, I think, responded pretty brilliantly when he said this. He said, in the world of relationships, it is impossible to love people with a problem or a need without in some senses sharing or even changing places with them. Listen to this. Listen, Listen to this. All real changing love involves some form of this kind of exchange. I think that's profound for this reason. 
Look, when was the last time that you made an attempt to be there emotionally for someone else? You know what I'm talking about? Someone who was presented with a need, something they were going through. Have, have you had that moment where you realize that there is no way for you to love that person without you being emotionally drained yourself? Has that occurred to you? Love to anyone is costly to you. Always. You can't love a person until you're willing to sacrifice something of yourself. I'll be honest with you. Ginger and I learned this when we had children. (laughs) There's a moment, (laughs) it's a vivid moment, where you sit down with a child and you look and say, it's either me sacrificing my ease, my my, uh, comfort, you know, my independence, my freedom... Or this child's going to sacrifice it. In which case, it, it dies. That's a vivid moment. <laughs> Moments in parenting with the Newsoms. Um, that's what tonight's theme is. But it all involves sacrifice. It all costs me something. I would simply add one notion to what Keller is saying. Because it's not just, it's the degree of sacrifice is also important. It's not just that it requires sacrifice. There's actually a level there depending on the one that we're sacrificing for. You ever thought about this? Uh, Look, if somebody calls me tomorrow morning and says, Les, I need you. I have a certain set of expectations about how much sacrifice my relationship is going to demand. But if tomorrow Barack Obama calls me and says, Les, I need you, um, the, the level of my commitment is going to be heightened, is it not? The level of my sacrifice is going to be heightened. And that's also true for the nature of the struggle. If somebody comes to me and calls me tomorrow and says, Les, I'm really struggling with this problem of, I don't know, using bad language or something like that. I realize that there's a level of sacrifice that it's going to cost me to invest myself in that person. But if someone comes to me and says, Les, I have been trapped in years of addiction and slavery to some kind of chemical. You realize that that's going to be a much greater sacrifice that it's going to call of me in order to have a relationship with that person. Okay, so here's my question. What do you do when the phone call is from God? Someone who rests in infinite greatness to a person who in comparison is one of infinite smallness. It's almost understandable to be immediately put off by the awkwardness and the weirdness of the entire sacrificial system. Until you suddenly realize what it means if I'm going to have communion with a God who is that great. Because if God is who he says he is. And I am who he says that I am. The bridge that we build between us is going to have to be great. It's going to have to be wide. It's going to have to be vast. It's going to have to be certain. It's going to have to be secure. It's going to have to be ongoing. In other words, God is looking and saying, what if I want to have a relationship with you that goes beyond the theoretical? You know what I mean by that? For a lot of people, their relationship to God is merely theoretical. He's he's an idea. He's an abstraction. He's that thought that makes me feel guilty when I do what I shouldn't do. But what if God says, no, (laughs) I want to know you. I want us to be in such deep relationship that it makes every other relationship relativized in the face of it. 
What if I want to know you deeply and personally? If that's the case, there's got to be something. There's got to be sacrifice. Like, I have to be honest with you. There's a lot of people who say they don't get Christianity because they look at these sacrificial systems and they say it's primitive. But in my opinion, they're just not thinking clearly because they've not realized that any relationship is going to cost you. I wonder how many of you have discovered this yet. Some of you upperclassmen may help some of the younger classmen to know this. College for many of you is the first time where you suddenly realize that in relationships, broken relationships hurt. They hurt. Some of you are smarting even now from the kinds of things that have happened just since you got here. Broken relationships are painful. And in order to sort of build relationship back, it's going to cost. And when you feel the pain inside your heart, it is, I am arguing with you. I am submitting to you for your consideration. That it's a memory trace of the way in which you were built to know God. God knows you were made that way. And he says, I have set up a system that will ultimately be fulfilled in the person and in the work of my son. For us to have a relationship. And it means it's not going to be shallow. My friends, the sacrificial system means that we can go in. And what it means is that on the cross, Jesus was alienated. Jesus was separated. Jesus was broken off. He experienced the vulnerability and the pain and the brokenness that many of you have only tasted in tiny little drops. And because he absorbed it, he looks and says, therefore, I'm going to give you an exchange intimacy that you can know my father in a way in which the sacrificial system itself could never give to you. But because I've come, gives you a fellowship that you could never have known otherwise. Okay. <laughs> what do you do with that? You may not believe it. That's fine. It may still sound primitive to you. That's fine. But do you not hear something in your own heart that says, I wish that that was true? Because if that's enough curiosity to keep you continuing to look into it, you might just find it. Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, would you grant to all of us the privilege of being able to see this in the same way? Lord Jesus, we are put off by this message. We're put off by these ideas, these pagan-seeming notions of you demanding blood from your people. And Lord, we're longing for you to be the one who shows us the way through. That, Lord Jesus, we would see you as our ultimate sacrifice. The bleeding sacrifice on my behalf screams. Lord, perhaps would you, for maybe even the first time, grant to someone the insight that they would need to see that you have made a way. That the gap has been bridged. That there's no more uncertainty. But there's security and assurance that waits because of the Lamb. For that, Lord, we ask that you would do for us in a gracious way what we can't do for ourselves. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.